0: show of hands, who here wants to be happy? Some of you didn't raise your hands. I saw that. I'm going to assume you don't, and it's not that you weren't listening. But uh, I think that's the most common message we hear today. It's what we're told the point of life is all about. I just want to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Right? That's why we enter into relationships. That's why we leave relationships. It's how we spend our money, it's the way that we use our time in pursuit of happiness. So why are so few of us happy? (laughs) That's what we're all about. Well, Wayne Wilson, better known as Dwight Schrute from The Office, has a new show called Geography of Bliss. Now for the small minority of you that think I use too many Office references, um, this doesn't count, it's a different show. but the whole point of this show is he travels around to other places to see what makes them happy he says in the intro he's a little mopey you know it's been said that the search for happiness is the chief source of unhappiness well that's okay I'm already unhappy so I've got nothing to lose Then in the first episode, he goes to Iceland, which, you know, we have these uh, happiness rankings, because that makes sense. Um, And it's the third happiest country in the world. And it's interesting to hear some different perspective, different approach to life, some of it that would be helpful to step back from where we are and see some of the values there. But toward the end of the episode, We actually hear that there are more people per capita in Iceland that take antidepressants than any other country in the world. So they're the third most most happy, but have the most people on antidepressants, which begs the question, are they actually happy? Can we actually be happy? If so, how? What we're gonna see from our text this morning is that the Bible answers these questions, and we're gonna see that we can be happy Our passage will translate it blessed or blessed, um, which means deep abiding happiness, this satisfaction, well-being. It's not like this shallow happiness when you get a toy and then when the dopamine hit wears off, you're sad again. It's not like that. But it's one that anchors us. It's more like lasting love than kind of this intense but quick fading infatuation. We've probably all experienced that. So let's see what Psalm 1 has to say about our happiness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. If you're just joining us this morning, welcome. If you're not just joining us this morning, welcome. We just finished working our way through part of Acts, so great time to jump in, and we're starting our summer series this morning. So as a church, we alternate through different portions of Scripture that we preach trying to get the whole counsel of God. So in the fall, we go through an Old Testament book. In the spring, we go through a New Testament book. And then in the summers, we've worked our way through different things. We've covered the wisdom literature. And this summer, we're going to be spending in the Psalms. There are 150 of them, so we're not going to quite get all of them. But um, we're going to be poking around in some different places, hitting some different themes that seem to come up a lot. And as we come to the Psalms, I think it's helpful to ask, what are they? How do they function in the Bible? Um, so basically, the word psalm means song. And its primary use is it's the songbook for the people of Israel, for God's people. As we go through the psalms, we'll see that sometimes they're prayers to God. They'll address God, first person. Sometimes they're encouragements to one another. Sometimes... We're talking to ourselves, to our own souls and hearts, and they'll switch back and forth between these, even within the same psalm sometimes. So this book is great for prayer and devotional life. But I think ultimately the psalms are meant to be sung together as God's people. That's why we'll see some of the songs that we sing are based on psalms. Better is One Day is one of those that we sang this morning. They're meant to be sung That's not to say that we're not praying as we're singing, as the quote often attributed to Augustine goes, he who sings has prayed twice. It's actually worked in our heart more. Psalms are definitely theological, too. They tell us about God and ourselves, but it's important to recognize that they're psalms, they're poetry. They're meant to hit us more, more in here. They hit us more in our affections, in our emotions, than in our intellect. They're after our hearts. If you've spent much time in the psalms, you've probably noticed how they give voice to your emotions, um, often in ways we don't expect. The psalms are more honest about the way I feel sometimes than I'm going to be with God or with myself. And so they give voice to our emotions. They give permission for us to be honest, but they do more than that. They also shape them. They help us to feel things Rightly. They give us the path forward. They help move us in the right direction. They tug our hearts in the way that they should go. So as we look at Psalm 1 this morning, it's kind of the gateway to the Psalms, the entryway. So we talk about meditation. It's kind of a hint for the rest of the Psalms as we're thinking about them. But what we're going to see even in this is it's the way that we want to go. And my hope and prayer is that as we look at it this morning, we'll end this morning saying, yes, that's what I want. That's what I desire. God, give me more of that. And it hits us here. So let's dive into the psalm together. And what we see, if you look at it, just back and forth, is this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, um, between one who is happy and satisfied and rooted and one who is hollow and empty and dried out. And it offers us these two paths. It's saying, you're on one of these. Which way do you want to go? As I said, it pulls us in the right direction, it says you know this is what you want. You know this is what your heart wants. And We're going to look at it by especially considering the happy or the blessed person, what he values, what he's like, and as we consider him we'll see the alternative kind of set as a foil against that. And I think the main application point is verse 2, it's kind of what he does. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy and satisfied, this is what you'll do. What does it say? It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So, start of the question is, well, what is the law of the Lord? When we hear the law, we usually think in terms of the rules, right, of what we have to do. Maybe the Ten Commandments, uh, rules God has given and so uh, you'd have to be like the hall monitor type or the prefect for the person that loves the rules and wants to see them enforced if you're going to be delighting in them. Right? And why do we do that? Because we keep the rules. Because we do a good job. Builds us up. lets us us stand. Makes me know I'm good enough. But the other side is we realize we can't. We can't keep them. They just crush us. And if they do... Honestly, we'll never delight in them, right? But that's not what this means. The word is Torah, which means covenant instruction, including the rules, including the laws God does give. But often Torah refers to the first five books of the Bible, Um, but I think here it's referring to the whole of Scripture. And other places in the Bible use it this way as well. Just in John, twice Jesus says, it's in your law, and then he quotes a psalm. This is showing that it actually applies to these other places. It's inclusive of, I think, all of God's word is included in this instruction. And it's important to remember that while there are rules in the Bible, that's not primarily what it is. It's first a story. It's a story of the God who made all things, who is saving a people for himself. And then even the rules God does give, they're in no a way for people to earn favor with him or to get him to love them, but he gives rules for how life works best to people that he's already redeemed, to people he's already saved, to people he's already showered his love upon. Even the Ten Commandments, that's how it starts right before. I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, here's how you should live. I've already saved you. I've already entered into a relationship with you. I already love you. And this is how life will work best. Right? We don't love God and meditate on his word so that he'll love us. We love God and meditate on his word because he first loved us. We see that ultimately in Jesus, where God became man, where he lived in this broken and sinful world so that we might be restored to him, that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. And when we realize and understand what he's done, then we can't help but love him back. It's the natural response. And then how do we know what does it look like to love him back? he tells us in his word. He's made himself known to us. And so it makes sense that if there's a God who created the world, who knows how it's supposed to work, who designed it for our happiness, who when we broke it, entered in himself to fix it, it makes sense that if we delight in his instruction, if our hearts and lives are shaped by it, if we're longing to know him and love him more and more, that we would then experience the happiness he made us for. It just makes sense. And on the flip side, if we reject him, say we don't need anything he has to offer, live contrary to him as if he doesn't exist, maybe even mocking those who believe in him, we might elevate ourselves up, but we won't have any lasting happiness. We won't experience blessedness. And that's what the psalm instructs us not to do in 1st 1. It starts with those three negatives. Not to listen to the advice of those who reject God. Not to live contrary to his instruction. Not to take our place among those who mock and reject the very idea of God and those made in his image. Instead, because of who God is and what he has done, we're to delight in his instruction. And to meditate on it day and night. Because that's the secret to happiness, simple. So what does that look like? How do I make myself delight in it? What it tells us to do is meditate, day and night. Delight and meditation are put parallel, that's in Hebrew poetry, it's all parallelism. These things kind of either go together, illuminating one another or contrasting one another, It's kind of how Hebrew poetry works. It doesn't rhyme like in English, where if it doesn't rhyme, it's not poetry. But they put in parallel. Delight in meditation. They rise and fall together. As you do one, the other grows. Right? Do you want to delight in God's word? Meditate on it. It's really interesting here that meditation is the emphasis. That meditation is the key. Because that's probably not what we expect. Because like, we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to read our Bibles more. We're supposed to pray more. We're supposed to go to church more. We're supposed. To, right? That's what it says. Oh, meditate on it. The spiritual discipline that we often just ignore, that we're too busy to actually do, that we don't see the value in, says that's actually the key. That's the marker of the happy person. So we might need to ask, well, what is meditation? We often have Eastern meditation or transcendental meditation ideas where either we empty our minds or we focus on one thing that we can become one with the universe or live solely by intuition. But that's not what biblical meditation is. It's actually the opposite. It is rational. It's not merely rational, but it is rational. It uses reason. Instead of emptying, instead of taking things out, it says put stuff in. It says take God's word, put it in there. Filling our minds with it and then turning it over, examining it, looking at all the different angles, pondering it, thinking out the implications of truth, anchoring it in our souls. What it actually does is it takes God's word and applies it to our hearts. Right? Where Bible reading and study is largely intellectual, right? it's a lot of knowledge, it's knowing the truth. Meditation moves it past our brains and into our hearts. Richard Baxter, old Puritan, puts it well. He says, meditation is distinguished from the study of the word, wherein the principal aim is to learn the truth. And it's also distinguished from prayer, in which God himself is the immediate object. Meditation is the affecting of our own hearts and minds with love, delight, and humility toward the things contained in the word. Tim Keller talking about this, says it's kind of like a bridge from Bible reading to prayer. Where we're, where we're actually talking to ourselves, like Psalm 103, right? Let's say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Forget not his benefits. Right? We're talking to ourselves. I used to make fun of my mom when she talked to herself all the time. But this says we're supposed to do it, right? We're supposed to talk to our own hearts. It's not always just the easy stuff either. Psalm 42, why are you cast down on my soul? It's taking this truth and saying, what are you doing, heart? How does this work out in you? We're talking to our own hearts and souls. We're encouraging them when they're weak, showing them where they're inconsistent with the truth, moving the truth into them, that we might be whole persons and not just intellects being reformed into the image of Christ. I think we're all familiar with the way head knowledge often doesn't make its way into our hearts, um, especially in our denomination, if we're honest. One example I was confronted with this week was a book title recommended on Amazon, popped up. Disclaimer, I haven't read the book, so I can't recommend it, but I couldn't agree more with the title. The title is Humble Calvinism. The subtitle. And if I know the five points but have not love. Right? That's convicting. It's sad and ironic that we can know that all of our salvation is from God and then be arrogant jerks because we know it and those stupid other people don't. But that just shows that it's in our head and not in our hearts. If we know that all of it comes from God if we actually grasp that if we believe it in our souls how could we not be the most humble Christians in the world we didn't do anything God did it it's really easy to check the box on Bible reading and not think about it again right? have you ever been following a Bible reading plan and you're doing it every day Faithfully, and then there are multiple days in a row where you like, have to look at what book you're in, not even the chapter? Is that just me? It happens. Because I don't think about it again throughout the day. Side note, um, I do think that we should read God's Word widely, and that most of us would greatly benefit from reading through the Bible on a yearly or every other year basis, um, and we can't meditate on all of it, right? That's too much. It's okay, but there's still value from hearing or reading God's Word widely. Um, but what we're hearing from our passage here is that we really do need to actually meditate on it. Maybe pick one verse or one idea or one principle from your reading that kind of pops out, sticks out to you, and spend. 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes reflecting on it turning it over in your mind applying it to your heart then moving to prayer where we confess that this is true but I don't live like it God help me work in me by your spirit change me it takes time it takes effort but it's worth it as we ponder it, as we turn it over in our minds, as we apply it to our hearts by God's Spirit, it actually changes us, it roots us. Baxter practically uh, recommends giving it stated time. He says, set time aside, schedule it. Okay? If you're like me, I'm routine and schedule. If I don't have time set aside, it'll get squeezed out by something else. This is a practical thing to do. Do it frequently. That's the idea of day and night. I don't think that means nonstop, continually, all the time. Um, In Joshua, he's another one that says meditate on it, day and night. Joshua's the commander of the army uh, doing conquest in Israel. He's not just thinking through this stuff all the time, all day long, nonstop. It's not just monks in a monastery doing this. This is for us frequently. Multiple times in the day if you can, or at least once a day is what Baxter recommends. That makes sense, too. I mean, if any of you have learned a skill, it's a skill, right? What does it take? Repetition, frequency, time. To get good at it. We get better at it. So we get shaped by it. So what's the result? This is the image we get in verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does He prospers. That's what we want to be, isn't it? There's so much to pull out of this image. Um, We're just going to look at a couple things, just really briefly, um, hopefully model this a little bit. But um, This would be a great passage for you to think through different elements of it. Meditate on it and think of how it applies. Turn it over. Question your own heart with its truth and speak truth into your heart and will. To say, am I seeking this in my life? Are there reasons that I'm not? What are they? Let that be the bridge into prayer where we ask God to help him make it more true. Let's just look at a couple. First, the tree is planted by streams of water. I think there's a never-ending source of water for it. I think that's the main picture of the meditation, right? It lays these deep roots down by the water that it can draw from them. It can draw deeply from God, from Christ to his living water. It's rooted. Its needs are always met. It's not contingent on circumstances. Now, we planted an herb garden last year. This is the first time I've tried to grow anything and uh, you have to water it a lot more than I thought. It's not a once a week thing. Um, yeah, I did well most of the summer and toward the end I was just like, yeah. You know what happened, it all dried up, it all died, it was contingent upon me, poor thing. Not this tree, not this tree it can survive. It can even thrive in a drought because it has this endless supply. It still goes through the changes in the weather. It still goes through the seasons. I mean, just as we talked about Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? It doesn't mean there's always this bubbly happiness going on. It means we're rooted in the one who sustains us, the one who keeps us, the one who protects us, the one who anchors our souls. Right? We're not threatened by the circumstances. So what might a quick meditation on this look like? So, why are you concerned about this circumstance? Why are you afraid of what might happen? You're relying on this to comfort you. You're relying on this for peace. Aren't your roots in Christ? Aren't you safe in him? Hasn't he brought you through everything else? Trust him again. Hold fast to him. Praise him. See, as we rehearse it, as we practice it, it moves into our hearts. It enables us to live that out. It changes us. Even, and maybe especially when we do it when we're not in the situation that we've prepared ourselves for it so that when it does come up our hearts are practiced and prepared instead of freaking out and getting anxious and nervous we're already rooted and stable right if your toddler's in a meltdown it's not the best time to teach them how to lower the volume you teach them volume control when they're happy when they're in a good mood. And then when that meltdown comes, they have the skills to lower the volume. not saying they do or will, but they have the skills to do it. That's Tim Keller, one of the last books he wrote was on pain and suffering. He wrote it before he was diagnosed with cancer, and I heard an interview where he was talking about that. What have you learned? He said, I haven't really learned anything new. It was all in the book. But I've actually embraced it now. He'd already cleared the path, so he suffered well. One, and second, it yields its fruit in its season. Right? It still grows, it still goes through these natural cycles. That's expected. It's even healthy. It takes time to grow to see the fruit you'd like. But it comes, you plant a full-size apple tree, it's like six years before you see the first bit of fruit. It's okay. And then when they do have apples, they don't have them all year. Did you know that? You can get them at the grocery store all year, but they're not on the tree all year. (laughs) You think about fruit trees too that are planted. It's planted, that's another thing you could think about. For whom do they bear fruit? For themselves? No. For the one who planted them. For the hungry passers-by. For all the critters running around under it. In no, our yard, the rabbits. For the benefit of others. So even as we're considering an individual's happiness, yes, they're rooted, they're sturdy, they're strong. But all this comes alongside the support of being able to bear fruit for the good of others. And it's crazy how God created things to work. The tree draws in water and transforms it into growth and fruit. That right? we drink deeply of God's word and it transforms within us into love—love love of God and others. What might a quick meditation look like for ourselves? So, what kind of happiness or blessedness are you desiring? True happiness isn't only for ourselves. It isn't self-centered. Look to love and bless others. Do I know others or am I wrapped up just in myself? Then, like Keller said, it bridges us to prayer. God, help me to see how I'm so concerned only with myself. You've blessed me to be a blessing. Show me how to do that. Give me opportunity. It moves out like that, and so on and so forth. You get the nice little summary. In all that he does, he prospers. If we think back back again, what does he do? We can assume it's what he delights in. In loving God and loving others. Happy, content, secure, successful. Getting what he wants even. I'd take some more of that, right? And if the positive picture of a rooted, weighty, healthy, happy tree weren't enough song gives us the flip side as well the other option verse 4 the wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away chaff is like the dried out husk on a grain so they bring all their grain in put it on the threshing floor and either animals would tread it or they beat it with sticks and they gather it all up throw it up in the air and a breeze would blow away the chaff that has no weight and the grain fall to the ground so then they'd have their grain But what's interesting here, John Calvin points this out, is that the psalm doesn't say the righteous are like a big strong tree and the wicked are like a little scrawny tree. Because though it's not always visible to the naked eye, though it's often what's in our hearts that we don't get to see, is how different they really are. It's not a difference of degree, it's a difference of kind. One has life and weight and substance and can weather a storm. The other is dead. It's a hollow shell. It's blown around by a slight breeze. I think if we're honest, many of us know what that feels like. We've lived our lives going after these things and whether we've achieved them or not, we found out that they don't satisfy They hollow us out. We're left an empty husk. You hear people say, I felt like a shell of myself. Right? I don't know who I am or if I matter. There's a better way. There are others that might look all right. Life has been pretty easy. Might be what the world calls a success. But have never meditated on God's word. So why can't I just do what they do? Why can't I get what they've got? As one of my seminary professors would say. It's a free country. You're free to do that if you want. It. But at the end of the day, you will be exposed. So we see in verses 5 and 6, you will be exposed in judgment. In the end, the grain will fall and they will be blown. It might look good for a while, but they cannot stand in the judgment. They do not belong among the congregation of the righteous. The forests of trees securely rooted in God. All who are not rooted in God, who are not being watched over and protected by Him will perish. It's not too late. If you've been a Christian, but find your love cold, meditate on Christ. Move the truth of what you know about him into your heart. You might truly comprehend his love for you, right? That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. They might actually get it. If you don't know Christ and want to know true lasting happiness or can relate to feeling like chaff, come to him. Meditate on the message of the gospel and see if your heart is not moved.